Hi, this is Rich Branson, Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. Welcome to the December 2020 Editor's Commentary. This month's Editor's Choice paper explores the transition from ICU ventilator to home ventilator in pediatric subjects. Willis and co-workers reviewed data from 56 children discharged over a seven-year period before and after implementation of a standardized protocol. The majority of subjects were from the neonatal ICU with a diagnosis of bronchopulmonary dysplasia. They reported that following implementation of the protocol, there were fewer attempts to successful transition and a shorter duration of transition to a home ventilator. Iyer and Neweth provide commentary describing the process of transition as complex, involving multiple providers and the family. They suggest that this process requires selection of the right patient at the right time, using appropriate equipment and ventilator settings to approximate the ICU ventilator. They agree that a protocol is able to mitigate factors associated with transition failure. Borges et al. report on their 10-year experience of home mechanical ventilation in children. They evaluated hospital readmissions and mortality in a small group of patients in Brazil. Different from the report by Willis, the majority of subjects had cerebral palsy. Readmissions were primarily for respiratory infections, and readmission within the first six months was associated with death. Willis opines that these patients typically have substantial medical needs and utilize a higher proportion of healthcare resources compared to patients with other chronic conditions. She advocates for a national home ventilator registry to facilitate research and share best practices. Viana and others describe open endotracheal tube suctioning and hyperinflation with no change in FiO2 and a PEEP of zero, compared to zero PEEP and an increase in FiO2 of 20%. They studied critically ill, mechanically ventilated patients in a crossover trial. They found no differences in the degree of oxygen desaturation or ventilation as measured by expired carbon dioxide. Restrepo provides commentary comparing this work to the AARC clinical practice guidelines and highlighting the differences. While closed circuit suctioning is a standard of care in the United States, this is not possible in many other nations. Griffin et al. described the use of non-invasive measures of gas exchange to monitor non-invasive respiratory support in children at home. Hypercarbia was a common finding, while oxygen desaturation was rare. They concluded that greater than 10% of pediatric subjects at home had abnormalities in gas exchange that could be corrected by an intervention. Kim and colleagues presented an analysis of indirect and direct ARDS in pediatric subjects. This retrospective review over 10 years included 162 subjects with ARDS. Most subjects had direct ARDS, 80% of them. They found that death in direct ARDS was associated with more aggressive ventilation and lower PO2-FiO2 ratios. These relationships, however, did not exist in indirect ARDS, where the pediatric SOFA score and lactate predicted mortality. Benoit et al. described the differences in adherence to VEST therapy using electronic and objective measures in subjects with cystic fibrosis. They evaluated adherence to prescription in a year-long study. They found that adherence in adolescents, 13 to 19 years old, was significantly lower than the younger age groups. They conclude that treatment adherence falls as children age and with more complex prescriptions, which also reduce adherence. Gilder and others evaluated avoiding endotracheal suctioning in subjects mechanically ventilated following cardiac surgery. Subjects requiring mechanical ventilation for less than 12 hours were randomized to avoidance of suctioning or routine care. 
They found no differences in complications or safety measures, including the escalation of oxygen therapy. Innocenti et al. performed a retrospective study of non-invasive ventilation use in the emergency department to determine factors associated with mortality and NIV failure. In 644 subjects, two-thirds with hypercarbia, they measured the HACOR, heart rate, acidosis, consciousness, oxygenation, and respiratory rate score at initiation and at one hour and 24 hours later. Mortality was 23% and was associated with the higher HACOR score. Costa and colleagues evaluated measurements of the timed inspiratory effort index using surface electromyography. In this perspective observational trial, the surface EMG was used to determine muscle strength. They concluded that subjects passing a weaning trial had greater, greater respiratory muscle strength. Gallerno et al. evaluated automatic tube compensation functions in ICU ventilators in a lung model and also conducted a survey of ATC use. The bench assessment evaluated tidal volume delivery at different levels of simulated effort and lung mechanics. Not surprisingly, the tidal volume was inversely proportional to compliance. Differences between the devices, however, were small. In their survey, 64% of survey respondents reported using automatic tube compensation in their clinical practice. Al-Khatib and co-workers compared oxygenation ratio, often known as the PO2-FIO2 ratio, to oxygenation factor, the oxygen ratio divided by mean airway pressure, in 150 subjects with ARDS. Subjects were classified as having severe, moderate, or mild ARDS. Receiver operating characteristic curves for both the oxygen ratio and the oxygenation factor at lung compliance, driving pressure, and mechanical power thresholds known to predict survival in ARDS were constructed. The use of the oxygenation factor reclassified in half of moderate ARDS cases as severe. They concluded that the oxygenation factor is superior ARDS oxygenation index and that PO2-FIO2 ratio and could aid in classification of ARDS severity. This is an age-old problem where a number of investigators have suggested that simply the PF ratio without knowing the severity of the ventilator settings can't place patients in different buckets for classifications of ARDS. Miller et al. evaluated the timing of tracheostomy in subjects following liver transplantation. This retrospective analysis from the National Inpatient Sample categorized early tracheostomy as earlier than 14 days and routine tracheostomy as greater than 14 days postoperatively. In over 2,000 subjects, they reported that the early tracheostomy was associated with a Charlson comorbidity score of three or more and a lower in-hospital mortality. They conclude that early tracheostomy following liver transplantation was associated with lower in-hospital mortality, shorter length of stay, and earlier discharge compared to a delayed approach. Dale and coworkers studied the educational experiences of caregivers related to the use of home mechanical insufflation and exufflation. They used semi-structured interviews with new and established MIE users and family caregivers regarding their satisfaction with their education on device use. Both new and experienced users were confident in the MIE use and the current education appeared to meet their needs. They concluded that ongoing education and follow-up is necessary for prolonged benefit of MIE in the home. Cardinal and others evaluated pharyngeal oxygen concentrations in a group of COPD subjects receiving nocturnal non-invasive ventilation 
and oxygen therapy by nasal cannula. They hypothesized that leaks during NIV might result in a reduced FiO2. The FiO2 during non-invasive ventilation was reduced on average by 5%. They suggest that failure of nocturnal NIV trials might be due to insufficient oxygen delivery. The study compares the flow rate delivered by nasal cannula to a similar flow rate placed in the ventilator circuit and it may be that we need to titrate the flow based on the leak and the fit of the mask. Godwin et al. evaluated emergency department intubations for asthma from the National Emergency Airway Registry over a three-year period. They determined that the incidence of intubations, methods and medications used, devices, peri-intubation, adverse events, as well as success and failures. In a sample of 173 subjects, they found that the majority of asthmatic subjects were intubated using rapid sequent intubation after pre-oxygenation with bilevel by mask and induction with ketamine. Common complications were not different from those with other indications for intubation. Gara Landano evaluated postoperative pulmonary complications in morbidly obese subjects with respect to intraoperative ventilation and the type of surgical procedure. Postoperative pulmonary complications occurred in 7.5% of cases and there was no effect of intraoperative tidal volume. Only the use of laparoscopic surgery was associated with fewer postoperative pulmonary complications. This data is different from a number of other studies that suggest the intraoperative tidal volume and PEEP may directly impact not only the postoperative pulmonary complications, but postoperative respiratory failure. Denise Willis, our first editorial intern, provides a narrative review on transitioning subjects with chronic respiratory disease from pediatric to adult care. She stresses that successful transition includes establishing standardized process, adequate planning, and effective communication. Fahey and colleagues provide a special article regarding the use of a flexible enclosure to reduce caregiver exposure during intubation of patients with COVID-19. The use of these head boxes to intubate patients with COVID-19 and protect the intubator um, has become popular, and this flexible enclosure protects not only the caregiver, but also helps to protect the assistance at the bedside during intubation. We appreciate your interest in the journal and your support, and hope you enjoy the podcast. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.